Morning. Good to see everyone. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, deer season opened this week in Kershaw County, so that's that's good news for a lot of us. Uh, it's also the reason I'm covered in about 26 chigger bites right now. So I'm going to try to get through this and not scratch, but um, I will, it's it's my uh, my suffering today. So I'm excited about this morning. This is the first sermon in the New Testament that I've been able to preach in quite some time which means I get to put the the Hebrew dictionary away and pick up the Greek. And uh, full disclosure on that, I passed Hebrew uh, with a 70.5, and a 70 was required. So um, if I were you, I'd always double-check my Hebrew references on that. Um, Anyway, just as a side note, um, I I was at a conference a few months ago with, uh, with Andrew and John, and there were vendors outside this conference and they were marketing uh, church-related products and serv- services, and they had this computer program so advanced that it could not only interpret the Greek and the Hebrew in one click, it could actually reference other sections of the, of the Bible where the word occurred, where the phrase occurred, and even where the ideas and themes occurred. And I was 100% sold on this concept, and the salesman said he had such an awesome deal for us and he finally got around to the price, and it was $1,700. So all of a sudden, the dictionary didn't look too bad at that time. Anyway, the title of this morning's sermon is A Father Who Runs. And that's going to make more sense as we get into the message. This is not my autobiography, um, but it, it'll make a lot more sense as we get through the, through the passage, which is The Prodigal Son. And in studying for this sermon, I couldn't help but remember the movie A River Runs Through It. And though you have a prodigal in this movie, uh, the prodigal in the movie actually doesn't leave. It's the older brother who leaves. But there's a lot of similarities in the scripture that we're going to read this morning. You have two sons who are competing for a father's love instead of for his things, as in the parable. But as a movie, I've seen very few that ended so well. And I'm reminded of the quote that the father uses at the end of the movie. His son has since died, uh, and he himself is now very old. And he says this. He says, each one of us is here today. will at one time in our lives look upon a loved one who is in need and ask the same question. We are willing to help, Lord, but what if anything is needed? For it's true, we can seldom help those who are closest to us. Either we don't know what part of ourselves to give, or more often than not, the part we have to give isn't wanted. And so it's those we live with and should know who elude us. But we can still love them. We can love completely without complete understanding. And this is what we're going to see from the Father in our scripture this morning. Complete love. But the difference is this also comes with complete understanding because though in the movie this was a loving father, he was far from perfect. And in our lives, we struggle the same way, and this is exactly how the world operates. With those we love, we don't fully understand them. We can't fully understand them, but we love them anyway. However, in our story and in our relationship with our Creator, we have a father who not only loves perfectly, but he understands perfectly. As I mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Luke, and Luke was written sometime in uh, 58 to 60 uh, AD, and it was written by Paul's beloved physician, who was Luke, and it contains the accuracy and the detail 
that one would, would expect from a physician. It kind of reminds me of my after-visit report from the doctor, you know, a thoroughly researched account of a period of time or an event. And Luke was an educated man. He was an intelligent man. And though he wasn't an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, he gathered his information from those who were. Peter was one of his main sources. Uh, the group of women who followed Jesus from Galilee were there. Also, Luke, content-wise, wrote the majority of the New Testament. Paul wrote the, the most books, but, but content-wise, he wrote the most. And uh, his theme is um, what we would expect, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, and he did bring salvation to the world. Listen to how Luke's gospel starts here in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so we can see this book was addressed to a high-ranking person due to the greeting, and that this person already knew something about Jesus. And to be clear, though it was addressed to one person, it was not meant for one person. The introduction is for the initial receiver, but since the introduction does not refrain throughout the book, is it... it it's, it's for a collective group of people, and it seems as this group of people has a knowledge of Jesus, but have yet to be converted. And so from Luke, we see a sort of evangelistic and, and, a, and an apologetic effort here on his behalf. And if you look at Rome at the time, it was full of excess, completely full of excess. And David Guzik says this about it. He said, Luke wrote to a first century world that was burnt out on, if it feels good, do it living. Yet it was offended by the crazy superstitions of most religions. The world then as today longs for what Christianity offers, faith founded on fact. And so to set the stage for our scripture this morning, Luke 15, the prodigal, Jesus has been ministering to all the people, all the people, the sinners and the tax collectors, and the Pharisees have called him out on this. They say in chapter 15, verse 2, that this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Jesus responds with three parables, three parables on lost things, a sheep, a coin, and a son. And this morning, we're going to learn about the son and the other son, because to avoid contrasting the two of them in this parable is missing the point of all of it. And so let's get started this morning with the scripture, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... 
He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So let's start this morning with the journey. So as we start with the journey of the prodigal, it cannot be overstated how disrespectful his request was. As Tim Keller stated, he's essentially wishing his father dead. And not only must the father deal with the weight of this, he also has to deal with the shame throughout the community that this would have caused. Because the appropriate response from the father during this time would have been severe, removing him from the family with nothing and with no one. And so to, honor, to actually honor the request as he did, it would have been very, very shameful. And in this culture, reputation was everything. It was and it still is an honor-shame culture, a collective society, community is everything. And this is what makes the prodigal's request so outrageous. But even more outrageous is the father's response because he allows it. And he says, go ahead, take my stuff, do it your way, shame me, humiliate me, and take it. Take what you ask for. The prodigal puts his hope in the God of this world. He puts it in what this world has to offer in money and in drugs and in alcohol and property and in sex and in all of it. And not surprisingly, it doesn't last. It never does. Even if the money would have not run out, we all know that none of this lasts. We can't help, though, by falling into this trap, and we do it time and time again. You know, if I get this new truck, I'm going to be happy. If I get this new house, I'll be happy. If I could just convince this person to marry me, I'll be happy. I, I did that, and it actually did work, and I'm happy, but that doesn't go along with this. But you, but you, know, you know what I mean. And so after a few months, we're back to our same old ways. And with the prodigal, 
we see the same thing. It is a very accurate representation of who we are. In the end, look where he finds himself. Broke, starving, filthy, and without hope. And Matthew Henry says this about the contrast, the prodigal son and the sinner in general. He says, The great folly of sinners and that which ruins them is being content to have their portion in hand now in this lifetime to receive their good things. They look only at the things that are seen, that are temporal, and covet only a present gratification, but have no care for a future felicity when that is spent and gone. So in this case, what does the prodigal do? What does the prodigal son do? Well, Scripture says that he came to himself. Uh, The Greek word used here is how to which in this case is translated his senses. Some of your translations may say himself. Um, it, it's, it can be used as a pronoun uh, to become conscious. There's many different, different translations here. Um, but it's worth noting that he does this. He comes to his senses. He comes to himself in a period of suffering. And that's probably a sermon for another day, but it's important to realize this. And so what else does he do? Well, he does exactly what we do when we mess up. We bargain. I'm going to go back to my father. I know he'll not accept me as a son, but that's okay. I'll just work for him. I'll become a hired hand, which at the time was less secure than than a slave. Because for a hired man, if the employer didn't want or need you anymore, he just turned you away and quit paying you. Whereas as a slave, they actually had some responsibility to provide them food and shelter. So he, he sends him away. No food, no shelter, no severance package. And so what does the son do? He bargains. And we also bargain this way with our heavenly father. I, I've done wrong and I know it. So I'm going to do bullet points one, two, and three, and then, then I'm going to get myself fixed. Or I hear it this way. I'm going to get my life in order and then I'm going to come to church And as if church is the last step after you clean yourself up, as if we're still living in the Old Testament where we couldn't present ourselves before the Lord unless we were near spotless and somebody was there to intercede on our behalf. And this isn't the gospel. This is not the gospel. And this is not why Jesus died for you. If we go back to verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And notice this, the son does recognize two very important things here, even in the midst of his sin. He recognizes the father's authority. He knows that the father has has the ability to fix the situation, but he recognizes correctly at the same time that he has sinned against heaven first. He doesn't say, I've hurt my father, I've shamed him, and now I'm going to go and make amends. He recognizes that our sins, first and foremost, are sins against our Creator. If you remember the story in Genesis, when Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph and wants to sleep with him, and, and look at Joseph's response in Genesis 39.9. He says, He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Not sin against his wife, not sin against Potiphar, but against God. So the prodigal son recognizes just who he has sinned against. And his reaction is a perfect representation of a Christian. 
broken, messy, sometimes correct. But listen, he knows who he sinned against, and he knows who can help. Which brings us to the return. We look at the return to the father. We already mentioned that the prodigal knows where the authority lies, and so he goes directly to the father. He doesn't run to the older brother and say, hey, I'm broke, I'm starving. Would you please put in a good word with dad before I talk to him? I I grew up with a twin brother, and we used to do this all the time. At one time growing up, I was probably 10 years old, I spray painted one of our cats blue. Um, And and in my defense, uh, um, I'm a Citadel fan, and I think there was a, a football game that weekend, and I can't think of a better way to support small college athletics than to paint a black cat light blue. But anyway, as the day drug on, I sensed that I'd made a mistake. Um, And instead of confessing to my father or my mother, I asked my brother. And I said, hey, like, um, on a scale of 1 to 10, man, like, how bad do you think this is? And he said, it's a 10. And I said, okay, um, like, my life is going to be cut short 10, or like, I'm not going to go anywhere for a while 10. And he was of the opinion it was the former, but uh, I'm still here, so it was definitely not that. But um. Because I didn't go straight, though, to my father, directly to him, not only did I not recognize the authority, my punishment was was much, much worse. And I'll tell you that story at another day. Anyway, the son goes straight to the father here, and with this prepared remark, with this prepared plan, but he never gets the chance to say it before what? Before the father comes to him. Because before he ever can... Scripture tells us, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. So the father does respond. But he doesn't respond with words. Initially, it says he ran. He ran to his son. And in in culture, in this culture, I read men did not run. It was beneath them. It was undignified. But his father ran to him. And you can imagine the son, probably bewildered, trying to say the lines that he's rehearsed, in his head, and the father responds before he can. He responds and he clothes him. And it says, the best robe. And he immediately brings him back to his former position in the family, as evidenced by the ring, which gives him the ability to do business on behalf of the family. And he puts shoes on his feet. This is our father's response. This is the response of the father to a repentant sinner. And this is a response of love. Um, I, I read an article recently about a father uh, in Spain whose son was born with cerebral palsy. And um, his son will never speak and he will never walk. But he, he actually uh, runs marathons with him in, in a wheelchair. And he pushes his son in, in a, a wheelchair. And um, it, it was interesting. And I was reading about this. And the gentleman's name is um, Jose and his son is Pablo. And um, absolutely amazing story. But when they're interviewing Jose, he says this. He says, I thank God every day for Pablo and for, his, and for this life story 
that God is having us experience. And yet he doesn't deny the suffering. He says that there are very hard days, but it's true that afterwards you discover who you are and who God is. Almost in the same way that we saw the prodigal realize the same thing during his suffering. Um, Jose goes on to say, though, he says, it's precisely because of Pablo that we believe in God, because we are living the impossible. We're a normal family that gets into fights every day, and we've got our things, but where Pablo is is concerned, our differences end. This is what unites us the most, and so for Pablo, for us, is an amazing blessing. He is what draws us together. Now, I thought this was just a great example of this type of love that we're looking at here today, the love between a father and a son. He's not lamenting the suffering. He's learning from it. He has opened his heart to be taught by the situation, and it's a beautiful display of love. So the final piece in the prodigal, in the parable of the prodigal, and this is the one that is many times overlooked, is the scorn. The scorn of the older brother. And in this parable, we miss the entire picture if we don't examine the scorn of the older son. And look at what the older son says in response to his brother's return. He says, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This is the response of the Pharisees. This is the response of the moralist. And again, look at what the, the older son does first. He doesn't join the party. And once again, we see the father going to the son. And the CSB translation uses the word entreated. It says the father came out and entreated him. And it's defined as to ask someone earnestly or anxiously. And the Greek was parakale, and it's used the same way as those who beg. In fact, the same word is used by the afflicted as they approach Jesus for healing. It's used by the lepers and the lame and the sick and the families of the dead that go to Jesus and ask for his help. And again, this is not the norm for the culture, for the time, for the civilization, for any of it. It is absolutely unheard of, but he does it. The father goes to the son, and what does the son do? He lashes out and he says, I did everything right. I did all that you asked, and you never gave me near the celebration, near the attention that you've given to my brother. And look at what he's done. He doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve any of this. Look at what he's done. And David Guzik says this about the son. He picks apart two phrases from the son's statements. I never transgressed and you never gave. He goes on to say these exaggerations are common for those who hold on to bitterness. The older son finally showed this bitterness to the father, but only after it had done his damage to his heart over many years. The older brother was unappreciative of all he did have. Every day he had his father's company and the blessed society of home. His father's love was round about him constantly and everything the father had was his, yet the proud and the self-righteous always feel that they are not treated as well as they deserve. 
And how often do we fall into this trap? And how painful is it for us to realize that we have fallen into this trap? When we realize that we have fallen into this false idea of what we deserve. Because when we start talking about what we deserve, we have to be very, very careful. Because the only thing that we deserve in this life is death for our sin. A life apart from God. That is all we deserve. But our Father, who is perfect in holiness and perfect in love, saw fit to save us and to let his son pay the price for us. The enemy, the moralist, the modern-day Pharisees think the way of the older brother. Think about this. Is there any sin that God will not forgive if we repent and ask? Of course not. But in reality, there are sins that the world would not have you forget that the world will not let you forget, that the moralist and the Pharisees and the enemy will not let you forget. And why is this? Because they don't understand the gospel. At their core, they do not believe that our gospel is big enough. They don't believe it's beautiful enough. They don't believe that God really did love the world, love all of us so much to send his son, not to condemn but to save us. And they have not been the recipients of his grace and his mercy and his love because a heart that has been convicted of this will never be the same. A heart affected by this is different. And though we will continue to screw up time and time again, we know this. Charles Spurgeon says this about this passage. He says, I never know which to admire more, the love of the father in going to meet the returning prodigal or in going out with this cold-hearted elder brother. He was a son, but he had not the true spirit of the father. He had fallen into a wrong state of mind, just like certain Christians I know who have always been proper and have little sympathy for those who have been great sinners. They seem not to want to see such people as these brought to the Savior. Why, they exclaim, there's girls from the street and men who have been burglars and all sorts of rabble being brought into the church. I've heard such remarks and I've seen the same sort of spirit displayed in the looks of others who have not liked to say what they thought. Yet they themselves were no better than others by nature, though grace has done much in restraining them from the sin into which others have fallen. And it was wrong for them to talk as if they were sheer legalists, as this Pharisaic elder brother did. We talked in the first section about the plan of the younger son. I'm going to do these actions, then I'm going to appeal to the father, and maybe I'll get a fraction of what I had before. And we've talked about that this is not the gospel. And we all do this. I'm going to free myself from the sin. I'm going to do these steps, these three steps, these five steps. I'm going to beat this. But church, we cannot beat this enemy on our own. We can't fight the enemy from our own flesh and blood. He is too strong and too cunning and too subtle and too clever. But when we appeal to the Father and we ask for his spirit, and when we have him on our side, we do not lose. We may suffer defeats throughout our lives and we may fall and we may stumble, but the battle is and has been and will continue to be won because of Jesus Christ. 
I like listening to old country music. And if you're not a fan, that's fine. And I do recognize the joke about playing country music backwards. You get your dog, your truck, and your wife back. Um, There is a little bit of truth probably to that. Anyway, last week on my playlist, I had Chris Christopherson's song, Sunday Morning Coming Down, on my playlist. And I know Johnny Cash made this song famous, but I don't care. I like Christopherson better. Anyway, um, I like a lot of songs in this genre, and, and it's a sad song. Um, but it was also personal for him. It was, it was a very personal song for him when he wrote it because he was going through very, very tough times. You know, most people don't know, but Christopherson was a graduate of Oxford University. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He was a former captain in the Army, and he was a helicopter pilot. And at the time of writing this song, he was sweeping floors in a Nashville recording studio. And in an article I read about him, the following was a, a snapshot of his life during this period. The author says, you can imagine how lonely he must have felt at this point. He would walk the streets of Nashville, young and broke, pondering and observing the world around him. What was he doing with his life? Where was it all going? How did he fit into this place he was trying so desperately to be a part of? Those questions and those experiences became the seeds of Sunday morning coming down. And if you don't know all the lyrics, uh, don't, don't sing along. But, but here they say, um, he, on the chorus he says, There's nothing short of dying, half as lonesome as the sound on sleeping city sidewalks, Sunday morning coming down. And let, and let me translate, a lost man, a lost son, Lonely, depressed, addicted, and searching. Searching for something, for hope, for purpose, for anything. Searching for what the world can offer and being consistently disappointed. But there is hope, there is purpose, and there is ultimate truth. And that is, and only is, in Christ Jesus And so as we learn in this parable, Jesus came for all of us. He came for the sinners. He came for the tax collectors alike. And so come. If if you're addicted to drugs, come. If you are broke and have nothing left to give, we want you to come. If you're hopeless and depressed and anxious, come. If your grief is so terribly heavy that you can't function, come. And if you are angry at the church, Please come. If you woke up hungover on a Sunday morning, just like Christopherson did when he wrote this song, we want you to come to Jesus because he came for you just as much as he did for anybody else. He came for all of us. And like the Father in this parable, our Father waits for our return. He waits for our repentance and our return again and again. And each time he waits... He waits with ring and robe in hand to welcome us home. He doesn't ask us to clean up. He he does not tell us to clean up first. He doesn't ask us to get our stuff together. He doesn't say present a presentable image. He says, come, and he will meet us. And I think at times we have forgotten this. We've forgotten who he came for and what he did on the cross. And and George MacLeod, a former pastor in the Church of of Scotland, says this. He says, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace 
as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves at the town garbage heap. At a crossroad so cosmopolitan, they had to write his title in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. The kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. Because that is where he died and that is what he died about. And he did. For who who you are now just as much as who you will be. So don't wait to clean up. Come to him now. He tells us this in the book of Matthew. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And why does he do this? And why does he do this specifically time and time again? Because he loves us. Because you see, the punishment has already occurred. It has occurred for our past, our present, and our future sins. And it was paid by Jesus so that when we believe in him, and when we put our trust in him, and when we give our lives to him, time and time again, we will hear, welcome home. And so if you don't know this kind of love, you don't know this kind of welcome, if you don't know this kind of forgiveness, please learn about it. Please read his word, talk to others about it. We have resources here at our church and we'd love nothing more than to help you. And if you're here and you've never been here before, if you're watching online and you've never come here before, if you're new at this, if you're new at church in general, and if you are hurting and broken and full of sin, if you've exhausted every self-help option you can find and you are still stuck in the same place, welcome home. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Father, we thank you for this church. And Father, we, we thank you for all that are with us today and for those that are suffering, Father, for those that are suffering with grief and anxiety and depression and health issues and financial issues. Father, remind them to come home just as they are, Father. Please help them realize, Father, they don't need to do anything. They don't need to clean up. That you will welcome them just as you welcomed us, Father. We know that you'll be ready to receive all of your children with open arms. And thank you for that, Father. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for the gift of our salvation through him. We pray in his name. Amen.